0: Hello, it's Ritika, Katie, and Nnedi, and you're listening to The, the cortex, cortex Cast. Today we are in conversation with Dr. Andrew Peters, who is a new Sir Henry Dale Fellow working as a Principal Investigator in the Department of Physiology, Anatomy, and Genetics. He is particularly interested in movement, with a focus on the circuit between three different brain areas, the cortex, the basal ganglia, and the thalamus. Each of these areas have been implicated in slightly different aspects of movement and are often studied in isolation. One of the greatest strengths of Andy's work is how he has managed to apply multiple modern techniques to target different parts of the circuit simultaneously. Perfect, so thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us today. Can we start at the beginning sort of thing? Can you tell us a bit about how your career has taken you to Oxford?
1: So I started out my undergrad um, at Rochester Institute of Technology, which is in upstate New York. And I was an undeclared science major, which means that I was interested in science, but I had no idea what I wanted to do with it. And I didn't know at that point, which I think is probably relatively common, that you can get paid to do research. That was like, you know, a novel (laughs) concept for me. So, um, I kind of learned that in the first year I was in school, and I also got interested in neuroscience, kind of because it combines a lot of disciplines. So I didn't know if I wanted to do chemistry or biology or physics, and neuroscience is something that you can do everything in. Um, that, combined with the fact that there's so much we don't know about, I think really drew me. From there, I became interested in in pursuing neuroscience. So then I transferred to Emory University, which is in Atlanta, Georgia, and a neuroscience degree there. and I started out with humans and then I switched to rodents working on amygdala related things. And that's where I figured out that recording spikes and neuronal activity is the thing that really drives my interest. From there, I did a year as a tech at the National Institutes of Health, so they have this program where you spend a year. Um, it's it's a slightly more than a tech, but less than a kind of PhD student, so you become involved in a project. So I worked there with David Leopold for a year, working with monkeys on vision. And then I went to grad school at University of California, San Diego. I did my PhD there with Takaki Komiyama, working on motor cortex and motor learning. Then I moved to the UK, where I did my postdoc with Matteo Carandini and Kenneth Harris. I'm working on basal ganglia and cortex interactions, and uh, then I applied for fellowships and came
0: here. Yeah, brilliant. It's (laughs) such an exciting journey, and so impressed by the fact that you've worked on vision, then on motor, and then you've Uh got a paper in review at the moment that's got um, prefrontal cortex, which is obviously quite a... Yeah, that's right. So
1: I've essentially been across the board because when I started working in the amygdala, it's very much neither motor nor sensory, right? It's effective. The signals there are harder to interpret than either end of the spectrum. So then when I went to vision, it's nice because you have all these great questions about how does the brain encode the visual world? You can kind of get at these things more mechanistically than things like effective neuroscience. So when I moved to San Diego, I was pretty open, actually. I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to do systems-level neuroscience. The program I was involved at, as most programs are in the U.S., you do rotations where you spend three months in three different labs to decide what you want to do. So I had just come from a vision lab. I would potentially have been open to doing vision, but the labs I ended up rotating in were... One that did hippocampus work, and one that did cerebellum work, and then one that did motor cortex work. So it was two motor and one hippocampus. Okay, so the hippocampus one, I think, is a good example where it's nice to try something out and then just see what speaks to you, essentially. So when it comes to the hippocampus, there's the remarkable phenomenon of grid and place cells, that you have this really strong place encoding in the hippocampus, but then does memory, and we don't know how those two things go together. And at the end of the day, when you see activity in the hippocampus, it's so far removed from what the animal's actually doing with that information that it's kind of hard to know like what is this spike contributing to in terms of driving a muscle to execute behavior. So that's kind of how I got interested in the output of the system where I said what I think I care about is how these spikes Turn into movement. It's getting closer to behavior that I'm interested in. So that was kind of why I veered in the cerebellum motor cortex direction. And the motor cortex just ended up taking more of my interest. It was looking across learning, it was doing some of the first two photon experiments. So it was just kind of totally new frontier.
0: That's brilliant. I think being able to measure behavior is such an interesting way into the complexity of the brain. And oh. I really want to also be near that behavior oh, right. level. Yeah, yeah. Good. You've also talked already about how you your previous experience is now driving what you want to do in your own lab. Can Uh you talk a little bit more about how you've made all of those decisions? Because it's a little bit different, isn't it, from working as a PhD and a postdoc Uh where someone's almost telling you what to do or at least giving you lots of guidance. Now you can suddenly do whatever you want. (laughs) Yeah, I think probably for the better.
1: I actually have had a lot of freedom in both my PhD and postdoc projects. So in both labs, I could just walk in and the PI say, you know, here are the themes of what we want to study. You just pick something you're interested in and do a project on that. So as a PhD student, my advisor, Takikomiyama, had kind of invented or was one of the co-inventors of doing head-fixed behavior with longitudinal two-photon calcium imaging. So this was a brand new thing. We can have animals learn and behave while tracking the activity of so single cells over the course of learning. So there were a few kind of just easy, not easy, but there was some kind of obvious next steps to take. So for example, how does a particular cell respond as the animal learns to make a new movement? So there was kind of a relatively clear next step from what he started to what I could do, but it wasn't like I came in, he was like, here's your project, you know? So I, I think that that was really nice. And as all projects do, it evolved over the course of time, you know, that I started out doing one thing and then I kind of veered to something else. And then when it came to my postdoc, it was even more so. So Matteo Carandini has a lot of visual neuroscience experience. um, And Kenneth Harris does a lot of computational work. He started out mostly in the hippocampus. So I come in and I say, I'm interested in the basal ganglia. And they say, okay, sure, you can say the basal ganglia. So I started recording from the basal ganglia when that hadn't been done in the lab before. Having that experience was nice because it meant that I had this thing that I could do that no one else was working on in the lab and then when I started my own lab, I could kind of just keep branching that out. So ultimately, my, my goals are to keep working on this cortex-basic ganglia interaction, but also to get back onto the motor side, because that's kind of where my original original heart was at.
0: Yeah, That's brilliant. Because you're going so brain-wide and you're targeting these multiple areas in lots of your experiments, I think the techniques that you're using have only been developed relatively recently. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting to see how you use, say, in your recent nature, paper, the neuropixels in the striatum and the calcium imaging in the cortex. How do you decide which of these brilliant techniques we now have available to us to use in any single experiment?
1: Yeah, so largely in part because of the labs I've joined, if it's nothing to do with me. They have been at the forefront of using new technologies, and then i very fortunate in being able to just step in and try them out. In the Kamiyama lab, as I was saying, it was the early days of 2 photon calcium imaging, especially longitudinal with behavior. In that case, the techniques actually opened avenues for questions, we hadn't been able to ask before. So it's not that I had the question first. I actually went a little bit backwards to say we have this amazing new technology. We can look at what single cells do over time. And then you say, okay, with this new thing what kinds of questions can we ask that we couldn't ask before? So that had this really powerful thing of tracking defined single cells over the course of time. And then as a postdoc again, I just walked into this amazing situation. So the and Harris lab had gotten these Neuropixels probes in the alpha stage. Available to four people on the planet, and our lab was one of them, Um, which meant every time you broke a probe, you (laughs) felt extra horrible. It was a totally remarkable thing, because in my experience with electrophysiology before, you get a handful of cells, and you have to spend a huge amount of time post-processing them so that you can identify which cells are which. And with this technology, combined with some software, so Marius Pacitorio, for example, came up with this spike sorting algorithm called Kilosort, which is currently still the best there is. It's almost magic. You just throw your data at it and it throws you a bunch of neurons. So again this technology was available. Also wide field calcium imaging had started to become a thing where you could look not at individual cells but at the entire dorsal surface of the cortex. So again it was was slightly backwards. I knew I was interested in the basal ganglia but we had these two technologies the wide field calcium imaging and the Neuropixels so we could say with this new stuff what kinds of questions can we ask that we haven't asked before and in this case it was how does the cortex talk to the striatum which we can do with these dual recordings. It's very nice to be question focused but in my case I think in both situations I a little bit went backwards from the technology so I think my luck in that sense has run out a little bit because there's no amazing new thing that's just been developed. I'm just going to have to work with the tools that I already know how to work with but hopefully
0: I'll have enough traction to get things moving. It's amazing how close you've been to all of these really cool techniques. Mm. It's just such an exciting field to be in. I'm sure a new technology will appear soon (laughs) that we can all
1: use. Yeah, although I'm not (laughs) against stopping so much troubleshooting. (laughs) It's nice to just have something work every once in a while.
0: You also touched there on the idea of single cells encoding things Mm. and also populations. Mm -hmm. Especially when you're looking at such global circuits. I sort of want to ask the horrible question of like, which bit do you think actually encodes the information? Do you think we should be looking at the population level more than the single cell? Or Hmm. is it just going to be a mixture of both the whole way?
1: Yeah, well that's that is one of the key questions in modern systems neuroscience. I think it very much remains to be answered. Um, and I think that there's there's answers in both directions. So we certainly do care about whether single cells change their activity over time, and maybe that really does contribute to behavior, or maybe, like you said, it's that a population encodes it somehow together, and then it doesn't matter what an individual cell does. So we have studies on the one hand where you can stimulate a very small small amount of cells, like two to three cells, and an animal can sense that and make decisions on it. On the other hand, some work that I've done and what other people have done show that there's a huge amount of drift in terms of what cells care about over time. Um, so at some level, I think it kind of has to be population-based, that there are some cells that seem to care about something for a long time, but even in 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 my case, I looked at um, cells in the motor cortex that project directly to the spinal cord, so it's almost as close as you can get to movement, and those cells have a shifting relationship with movement. Just on a regular daily basis so something about the system is constantly changing It's unclear why or what that gives the animal Um, so yeah I think it's I think it's a mixture of both but um, certainly it's one of the big challenges we're
0: addressing I think I always find that everything is changing all of the time in the brain (laughs) on multiple timescales yeah Yeah. and I noticed that one of the things you have studied a lot of is changes with learning over time studying single cells and most recently with the sort of looking at the Projection to the medial prefrontal Mm. encoding information differently once you've learned tasks. Yeah, so there's this debate where some Representations have to be stable so that we can continue to Mm. remember things whereas others need to be adaptable to learn Yeah, which sort of cortical pathways do you think are going to be most affected by learning? Is everything up for grabs in every moment?
1: (laughs) I I don't know so when I was a PhD student um, that was one of the things I was trying to address. So in the motor cortex, I was looking at layer 2, 3 cells. And what I found was that they changed their relationship to movement over the course of learning. So the long story short is that it kind of looks like there's a group of cells that develop some novel pattern of activity that then becomes robust as the animal learns. So it's almost like you have a specialized circuit to produce this movement that the animals learned. So after that study, I said, you know, the cells that are deeper, that project directly to the spinal cord, surely, they're stable, because that would be a beautiful story. In the superficial parts of the cortex, you have this circuit which is constantly shifting to accommodate learning, but then that plugs into a system which is stable, so it's, you know, at some point at the end of the day, when you press a key you've got to have a, a defined response. Um, so that was why I did that study, actually, to look at corticospinal cells, and even those had a huge shift over days and over learning. So, yeah, the question about, is everything up for grabs, I think. To some degree, yeah. Because that, that you know, that was an example where I was like, if anything's going to be stable, surely it's this. And I mean, even going down to the spinal cord, this is something which has been super difficult to study up until, even, I mean, even currently, because you can't do the same techniques in the brain as you can in the spinal cord, but it turns out the spinal cord also has a fair amount of changes, and we don't know even how cells in the spinal cord relate to movement. I would say at this at this point in time, almost everything is up for grabs in
0: terms of changes. And I think that's another area that I'm always really interested in, is how visual is a visual area compared to how motor is a motor area. Mm. And when you're looking at these big circuits as well, you see similar activities representing similar variables in multiple areas, and seemingly quite a lot of redundancy, especially in these kind of studies. What do you think? Why? There's this there's this idea that's
1: been popular within the last five years, that movement is represented everywhere. And this is something which is it's kind of funny, because coming from a a motor background I said you know yeah like of course movement is very important and it's all over the place whereas you had all these visual neuroscientists being like why is vision you know why are there mixed representations between movement and vision so um, some of us were surprised and some of us weren't that surprised um, I think it depends on the area so the primary visual cortex is one of those places where once we started seeing effects of movement um, we started thinking oh no there's something we really don't understand here so I remember for example when I was in grad school there was it was one of these kind of early seminal papers that came out from Chris Neal's lab. And the idea was that you have changes in visual encoding in the visual cortex, depending on whether the animal is running or not. And it was one of these moments where, I think I've kind of gone back and forth about this. I have these moments sometimes where I think the brain is so complicated. There's so many neurons. And we can only record from so little bit at a time that we'll never understand it. It's totally (laughs) hopeless. And this was one of those moments where you think, you know, okay, this is visual cortex, and this is motor cortex. And they say, no, visual cortex also has movement stuff. And you think, ah, geez, there's just, you know, we'll never get it. I actually, I I go back and forth. Sometimes I think we're doing a pretty good job. And sometimes I think we don't know what we're talking about. Um, But yes, so that was surprising. But then after that, finding movement signals all over the brain is something that I wasn't hugely surprised by because it's just, a lot goes on too when the animal moves. You have changes in arousal and the animal starts moving all over the place. So their, their vision changes, you know, they start sniffing, there's there's a lot of sensory stuff that goes along with movement. Um, so I think that's part of it, is all these signals look like they're mixed, because a lot of stuff happens when animals move. Again, that's another fundamental question in systems neuroscience at the moment, is how mixed these areas are, and whether they really encode the things we think they're encoding. So, I mean, another example to, to counter that everything is everywhere, there's actually a paper on BioArchive, which is titled, I think, Not Everything, Not Everywhere, Not All at the Same Time. So one of the papers that that just came out from the and Harris lab, it was led by Celia Bimbar, was looking at auditory responses in the visual cortex. So this is something that people said that they might have seen before, that you have this area, okay, visual cortex, maybe it has womb responses, but certainly it's just visual. And then some people said, ah, actually it gets input from the auditory cortex. You have auditory responses in the visual cortex. So um, he did this nice study, which whether it, it was almost an accident that they kind of got into this, but I think it's one of these important things in science to, to clarify this particular issue so it turns out that when you play a sound to an animal it has a characteristic behavior so let's say you play a sound that goes like bup bump, bump. you'll have the animal do bup bup three little twitches and those twitches cause a motor response in the visual cortex and it's not an auditory response and you can figure that out by doing these particular manipulations so at least at least in that particular case it's not that everything is everywhere okay. he doesn't see at least for what it's worth auditory responses in the
0: Next. I'm glad we've ended up with some sort of hope. That's, that's right. we are Definitely made progress <laughs> in this field. Yeah. Um, I think one of the other things I'd love to ask is: now you're building your own team. Now you've given everybody hope that there is hope in <laughs> neuroscience. What sort of thing do you look for in young scientists and people joining labs and team members? What do you think it takes to be successful and publish two Nature papers uh, and get? Yeah. To a what class? it takes to publish
1: two Nature papers is a huge huge amount of luck, seriously. Um, I think anybody that's been through the Ringer knows that so much of what you find is just luck, from what techniques you happen to walk into to how reviewer 3 cares about your paper. So, honestly, that's a huge amount of it. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think think the most important thing, for me, at least, has been just interest and excitement about science. That there's going to be a lot of times when things are difficult, and you're going to really have to slog through things to get it working But as long as you can keep coming back to this fundamental interest in science, then you'll always be motivated. I think as long as you always are interested in how the world and nature functions, and that that's some driving force, it's just this really deep thing that you can latch onto. So I think that that's probably one of the ideal things to have when going into science. Um, And that's not to say that you necessarily have to be a a scientist like you know, research a scientist when when you finish. Like you could go into industry, there's a million things you can do with a PhD. So it's not that you necessarily definitely want to be a professor or do research, right? I don't think that that's part of it. It's just that you're very interested in science and you want to contribute to learning how things work. I think everything else... Everything else you can learn, all the skills and the stuff. Um, I mean, you, you build up the knowledge by going to talks, you build the skills by doing things. As long as you have that foundation of interest, I think that's probably one of the most important things in sustaining, sustaining you through your career. Yeah,
0: It's really nice, because I think that's one of my favorite things about science as a community, mm. is everyone does have that deep interest in how the world works and yeah. sense of its beauty almost. Yeah, definitely. Yep,
1: totally agree.
0: Fabulous. So thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us sure, today. Sure, sure. It was such a lovely experience working with Andy, a dedicated and hardworking principal investigator, yet sold out to earth and humble. If you are looking for a lab to join and are interested in Andy's work, please head to his lab's website where you can find links to all his recent papers. He's also still in the process of establishing a new team in Oxford. So definitely get in touch as soon as you can. Thanks for listening in on our conversation today. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Please keep an eye on our social media to find our next one.